from verse 57. And our final reading this morning is from Revelation chapter 1, verse 1 to 8. The revelation from Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John to the seven churches in the province of Asia. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. To him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. In conversation with Christian earlier this morning, I was tempted to uh, call this sermon Everything You Didn't Want to Know About the Book of Revelation and Were Afraid to Ask. But I decided not to. Uh, but indeed, we are looking at the book of Revelation, so you might want to keep chapter 1 open in your hands if you would like to. Um, our Advent series this year, uh, which will begin in two weeks' time, will be a four-week examination of the seven letters to the seven churches, that is, Revelation chapters um, 2 and 3. I would like to spend two weeks preparing for that, two weeks looking at the first chapter of the book of Revelation before we look at chapters 2 and 3. Now, the book of Revelation has a well-deserved reputation for being difficult to interpret. And great care is, is, is required. Christians tend either to ignore it or equally read all kinds of bizarre things into it. One of the things that makes this book not so easy for us to understand is that actually it is three things at once. And in our reading this morning, the first eight verses of chapter 1, we heard about those three things. That this book is an apocalypse, that it is a prophecy, and that it is a letter. Verse 1 begins with, The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Uh, the, the word revelation is a literal translation of the Greek word apocalypse, uh, the noun from the verb apokalypso, meaning to reveal. So apocalypse just means thing, revealed things, things you can know, things you can see. That's a bit confusing for us because the word apocalypse 
in our everyday English language has now come to mean some kind of scenario in which the world ends. So then an apocalyptic battle or, uh, as I read in the newspaper this week, apocalyptic bushfires, something that's apocalyptic in everyday, in everyday language now means something so big it could destroy the earth. But actually, apocalypse in the ancient world, that just simply means a certain particular type of literature, a certain type of book, a certain style of, of writing. And that style was popular for about 600 years, roughly from 400 BC through to about 200 AD. And it was a style of literature that flourished at a time of massive global empires. Uh, the, the, the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, Persian, Greek, Roman empires. It was a time when God's people felt intimidated by what seemed to be mind-blowing displays of foreign, military, political and cultural power. Armies vastly bigger than any single nation could muster. No, we're no longer talking about local warlords and powerful kings and local politics, but this stuff seemed global. Everyone was affected. And it was overpowering evil. Emperors who were anti-God and anti-God's people. And who could stand? And so the style of literature that came to be known as Apocalypse, it employed symbols um, in order that frightened and embattled communities could communicate with each other confidentially without the powers that be knowing what was being said. Apocalyptic literature is coded literature requ requiring a cipher to break the code. And the cipher... That the thing which tells you what the symbols mean is your shared cultural and literary history. For example, in the book of Revelation, beasts always symbolize Gentile rulers and kings, just as they always did back in the book of Daniel and in Ezekiel. Now, a beast with seven heads yet with ten horns, that's very difficult image for us to picture our imaginations, yet actually it's a fairly simple way of talking politics. Kings and rulers. Who's in charge and what their policies look like. Without them knowing that you're talking about them. We don't really need to know much more than that for the time being because we won't at this time be going into those areas of revelation that are truly apocalyptic in style. Nevertheless, that is the first thing to know about this book. It is an apocalypse, a particular form of literature. Secondly, this book is prophecy. Verse 3 includes the words, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy... And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written because the time is near. And prophecy, in essence, is a message from God for people. Characteristically, in the Old Testament, they would include words like, thus says the Lord, or God says. 
showing us that the prophet is reporting a message that has been spoken clearly and audibly and directly to them for us from God. Prophetic oracles, prophetic um, speeches, messages, um, they're usually fairly direct and clear in their meaning, although they can include stories, riddles, parables, dreams and visions in order to make various points. But that's the second thing to understand about the book of Revelation. It is prophecy, a message from God. And the third thing to understand is that it is a letter. It takes the normal form of a letter in the ancient world, beginning with the name of the person who is sending the letter, followed by the ascription of to whom the letter is being sent. Our text today is a letter from John to seven churches in the province of Asia, a place uh, that, that we today would call Western Turkey. And our author is John, the brother of James, them being the sons of Zebedee, John, the apostle, one of the twelve. Uh, the, the early church, that is to say the second, third, fourth, and fifth generations of, of Christians, they all knew that John the Apostle was the author of Revelation. They all knew it. Um, as you may know, sure, there, there were one or two who, who denied that John was the author, but they were also very, very clearly and without exception people who disliked for various reasons the content of this book and were trying to discredit it by denying apostolic authorship because apostolic authorship turns out to be critical. John the Apostle, actually, he wrote a few things in the New Testament, didn't he? He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote three letters, the epistles we know as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelation. But this, this is the one and only book that plainly includes his name. His name is attached, and that's something different. In the Gospel of John, the author just refers to himself curiously as the beloved disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's an odd way of referring to yourself if you're writing a book. It's not crystal clear as to what he means, but nor is it totally opaque. The phrase we know from the book refers to a particular incident. On the night before Jesus died, John leant back uh, on Jesus and rested on Jesus' chest in order to ask him discreetly who it was that was going to betray him. Perhaps in doing that, that action reminded the disciples of a text in Deuteronomy, chapter 32, wherein Moses prophesies about the tribe of Benjamin, saying, let the beloved of Yahweh rest secure in him, for he shields him all day long, and the one whom Yahweh loves rests between his shoulders. John's chosen nickname, John's chosen nom de plume, fulfilled his desire of pointing away from himself to Jesus while simultaneously saying something about who Jesus is, that he is Lord, that he is Yahweh in the flesh. Um, again, in the epistles, John doesn't attach his name directly. He calls himself the Elder, actually a, a, a very general, friendly 
affectionate, self-effacing way of referring to yourself, like signing a letter, Grandad. Now, though, here and only here, John tells us unequivocally that, that he is the author, who the author is, and we're told three times in the space of eight verses. John, John, John. Why is this so important? Particularly when we consider that it is out of keeping with apocalypse as a literary genre. Mostly, if you're going to write an apocalypse, you'd choose a, a, a name from the ancient past, a mysterious name, Enoch, son of Noah. I don't know. <laughs> because you wanted to hide your identity for security reasons, but you also wanted to make a theological point. John doesn't that. He labels this clearly with who he is. Why? Well, it's important that we know that this prophecy has apostolic authority. That is important because it means that it is God's infallible word. Now, by this time, uh, um, the New Testament gift of prophecy in the church was, was commonplace. And the New Testament gift of prophecy is quite different to what John is talking about. Um, the gift of prophecy is simply the fact that all believers have the Holy Spirit and we can all prophesy to some extent or another as the Spirit moves us. But all such prophecy must be tested. And indeed, even when very gifted prophets stand to speak, there will be certain things that can be added and often there may be things that might be or should be subtracted. So, for example, if I was to prophesy, certainly somebody else could stand up afterwards and add to what I've prophesied and also prophesy. Also, if I prophesied, not being much by way of a prophet, some of the things that I prophesied might have to be subtracted. Rob might say, oh, Stephen, I think that might be more you than the Holy Spirit. And Joe might go, oh, not again. So, in the New Testament gift of prophecy, there is room for addition and subtraction and comparison with the Word of God. That's fine. And we can, each of us can prophesy in turn so that we may all be instructed and encouraged, strengthened and comforted. This is not that. The, the apostles prophesied, as with Jesus and as with the prophets of the Old Testament, infallibly the word of God. To add or to subtract, to amend or to correct would be a very serious mistake. John will conclude his prophecy with these words, which you can find in chapter 22. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes words away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. So it's incredibly important, it suddenly turns out, that we understand that the apostle is prophesying in a way that is otherwise closed. This is a special type of prophecy. Um, uh, and, the and that we know who, who it comes from. John the Apostle. 
so the letter begins with a blessing. Verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. Well, now, it's easy for us to imagine that back in the day, back in context, isn't it? You, you, you might have a small group of believers gathering together in the early morning of the first day of the week, and only 15% of them, on average, could read or write, and uh, maybe none of them, but only maybe one or two of them, could actually afford to buy scrolls. So you have a small group of, 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 of Christians. They've gathered their resources. They've bought a few scrolls. Uh, one person who is literate reads and everybody else listens. That's, it's easy uh, to imagine these words in that context. Um, <clears throat> but for us, for us who are so aware that the Bible is meant to be read, we might forget that the Bible is also meant to be heard. It was written to be heard. Um, each night... Uh, Joe and I uh, read the Bible and we pray together. Um, we pray a psalm and then we read uh, a chapter of whatever book we happen to be working through at that time. If one of us reads the psalm, the other reads the chapter. Each of us gets to have a go at reading. Each of us gets to have a go at hearing. Uh, may I suggest that you... Do likewise, uh, or if your time of personal devotion is by yourself, may I suggest that you at least occasionally read aloud to yourself. The Bible is meant to be heard as well as read. Uh, it, it's a document written to be heard. Of course, in the ancient world, people didn't read without making a noise. Um, historically, I think it was St. Augustine, um, Bishop of Hippo, who made a comment about seeing somebody read, and he could see the lips moving, but no noise came out. And in the medieval world, for somebody to do that, for them to read without the words coming out, that was witchcraft. Um, uh, it, it, it's, it's, good. it's good to read the Word of God. It's also good to hear it. Blessed if you read, blessed if you hear, blessed if you take to heart. In other words, hold on to it as it is, God's word, the truth. Now, <clears throat> when it comes to blessings, we live in a world where people are sometimes a little bit self-conscious about getting blessings. We don't want to be too keen to, to be self-interested or too worried about our own welfare. Oh, no, you know, we might say, oh, actually, thank you, I'm, I'm, I'm fine just as I am. Thank you. But <clears throat> actually... For there to be a blessing on offer and for it not to be taken <clears throat> is dangerous. Um, uh, to, to be offered a blessing and to reject that offer is to invite curse. It is to invite the judgment of God. Blessed are those, blessed are those who wash their robes that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. To be offered a blessing and to refuse to accept it is extremely dangerous. 
What is the blessing on offer here? Verse 1, God is sending this revelation to show his servants what must soon take place. Verse 3, because the time is near. Verse 7, look, see, understand, he is coming. Revelation is the book to help us understand the times in which we live. Times when it can seem that we are surrounded by overpowering evil. Injustice, self-promotion, self-gratification, oppression, repression, the perversion of all that is good into stuff that is bad, hostility, rejection, evil. Yet, and nevertheless, Jesus is Lord and he is coming back. If we read and understand the book of Revelation, we will be neither surprised nor frightened by the persecution of Christians at home or abroad, nor by things like global climate change. And that's a blessing not being frightened. Uh, when, when, when the ecologists start talking about uh, ecosystems in collapse, uh, when uh, the economists start talking about mass migrations, famines, and so forth, it's good to know that we do not have to be frightened. Another blessing, verses 4 and 5, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. The letter brings the blessing, brings the blessing of peace, not having to be frightened, and grace, knowing that it will be all right, from God to his church. The letter is, after all, not so much from John, but actually from God. Which God? Well, this God, the one who is, and the one who was, and the one who is to come. <clears throat> God the Father. Um, that's a play on words. It's a play on words we find in, in Exodus, uh, where God says that his name is, I am who I am. Or equally, I was who I am, or I was who I will be, or I will be who I was, or I will be who I am, or I will be who was, I was who I was. In other words, I am who I am. In Hebrew, Yahweh. That's a play on words. Variations on a the theme. God the Father. The next phrase, the seven spirits before his throne. What does that mean? Symbolically, God the Holy Spirit. We're not used to hearing the Holy Spirit referred to in this way, but the number seven is symbolic of the holiness of God and of his eternal perfection. John's phrase here brings together two Old Testament passages about the Holy Spirit. In Isaiah 11:2, the Holy Spirit is described in sevenfold characteristics the Holy Spirit is the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, of counsel, of might, of knowledge, of the fear of the Lord, of the spirit of Yahweh. The sevenfold spirit will be upon the Messiah. 
Isaiah 11.2. In Zechariah, the Holy Spirit is pictured as a gold lampstand in the presence of the Lord, in the council of God, seven lamps fed by seven channels of oil. The seven spirits, it's uh, an apocalyptic, symbolic way of referring to God the Holy Spirit. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. God the Son, Jesus of Nazareth, the one who perfectly shows us God in everything he said and in everything he did and in the way he did it and in the way he said it. The firstborn of the new age, an age where death has been defeated. That's who the letter is from. To whom is the letter sent? Well, we already know the letter was sent, verse 4, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. There were, of course, more than seven churches in the province of Asia. There were lots of churches. Again, the number seven is symbolic. Symbolic of the holiness of God and of his eternal perfection. The letter, therefore, read symbolically, apocalyptically, we know is actually a letter to the whole church, God's whole perfect church, to every church. And who or what is the church? Um, a lot of people claiming to be the church, uh, the church, a church, the only church, one of many churches. What is the church? Well, verses 5 and 6 tell us the church is the community of people who have received forgiveness of sins by the blood of Christ. They are those who have put their hope in Jesus and they have been freed, set free. Set free from what? Well, from sin, death and condemnation by way of accepting the gift on offer which is forgiveness of sins in Christ's name. Set free for what? Well, the text tell us, tells us, free to obey Jesus as king, serving God, our Father, as priests. Slavery to Jesus is perfect freedom. How set free? By his blood. In other words, by his unjust, sacrificial death on a cross. He who could have overpowered didn't overpower, but rather was overpowered, surrendering to overpowering evil and suffering unjustly. And in everything I have just described, Jesus' example was perfect. The injustice of Jesus' death was perfect injustice. If, if you took a newborn baby and nailed that little baby naked to a cross, that would be an, an atrocity. But not as unjust as it was to nail Jesus to a cross. Because he is the only person in history who didn't need to die. His death was the least just 
thing that has ever happened. The injustice of it is perfect injustice. The sacrifice of it is perfect sacrifice. He gave up everything, his dignity, his rights, his future, his breath, his life. And just as all of that about Jesus' death was perfect, so too, therefore, God the Father was pleased to vindicate him perfectly. Raised on the third day, every power and authority, every crown and honor, every kingship and lordship has been given to him. Jesus Christ is Lord. By his blood, Jesus Christ, the perfect witness to how God works in this world. If we understand the cross, we understand exactly what God is doing now. He is changing the world not by overpowering evil, not by overpowering force, but rather he is calling together a people who are willing to suffer sacrificially and unjustly. He is calling together a people who are not frightened by overpowering evil because they know the God who refuses to <clears throat> excuse me, who refuses to overpower and indeed destroys evil by allowing it to overpower. This then is what the whole letter is about. The time is near. The time for what? Verse 7, look, <clears throat> he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him, and all the peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. What is going to happen is the full revelation of Jesus. Jesus is coming back. And when